Jesus, with your grace, you have opened the prison doors and set us free. Lord, with your love, you have given us power and hope. Jesus asks that you would use these next few minutes, the things I'm going to say, the things we're going to think, to help us be people of grace, power, love, and mercy. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hello, 945. Good to see all of you here. Hello, people on the podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us. I want to start by showing you a picture of a worldwide phenomenon, a movement, really. And it started with, with just one person, and, and then it kind of grew, just a grassroots kind of thing, this kind of movement. And sociologists have studied it, and cultural critics have examined it, and they can't figure it out. There's just no good explanation for this. Justin Bieber, like even, like even he looks confused, right? Like why is, why is this happening to me? Well, the way it got going was when he was 12 years old, his mom uh, posted a video of him singing on YouTube, you know, thank you mom, right? And it just, it just kind of went viral from there. And, and the first song she posted was called So Sick, which was prophetic because it did go viral and pretty soon 12-year-old girls all over the world had Bieber fever, now today, no self-respecting teenager would admit to liking Justin Bieber. I verified that with my 16-year-old daughter. And do you know what she said to me? She said, Dad, you need to let me read that part of the sermon. Otherwise, you're going to say something that you think is cool, but it won't be, and you'll just embarrass yourself. <laughs> Thanks for the vote of confidence. So just, just to be clear, I am not a Justin Bieber fan, but he is an early example of this phrase that has entered our culture. It went viral. When something just takes on a life of its own without much orchestration from anyone. It just kind of has its own momentum. And here's a historical fact the media will never tell you. But it is a historical fact. When the, when the Jesus movement has gone viral, when the genuine Jesus way of life, not, not consumer Christianity, not a highly politicized Christianity to the left or to the right, but when, the, when Jesus and the genuine Jesus way of life has gone viral, cultures change for the better historical fact. <clears throat> as I mentioned before, early Christians transformed the Roman Empire, not through politics, as important as that is, but by living attractively different lives, joyful and suffering, more adventurous, sacrificially serving those around them until gradually Christianity became the dominant religion in Rome and a whole lot of stuff in the culture got better. Happened again after the fall of Rome. Europe was re-Christianized. Some things in culture got better. In our own country, the abolition movement picked up steam only after a wave of revivals swept through the country. Where Jesus is genuinely followed, it is often healing for the culture. As we've been doing this sermon series on how we can be pathfinders who bring hope and healing to a culture that needs it, a culture that is post-Christian. A few of you have said, well, so at some point you're going to tell us everything that's wrong with our culture and everything that's wrong with the world, right? No. That's the media's job, and they do it quite well, actually. I'm here to talk about hope. I'm here to say God is not up there wringing his hands going, oh, I've held the universe together for eons, but this stuff in America has got me stumped. Right? Like God's not doing that. And oh, by the way, he's not doing that with your life either. Oh, I don't know what to do about this. Person. No, God's got it under control. Christians should be the most confident people on the planet, not the nervous Nellies I'm seeing in a lot of places. How big is our God? Seriously. And when God's people live the radically counterculture life he calls us to, it can and has launched movements that can change your office, can change your workplace, can change your school, can change your neighborhood, can change a whole culture. And I'm not talking about shoving religion at someone. I'm not talking about being pushy or obnoxious. That's not how it works. It's caught, not taught. It's got to go viral. It's caught, 
not taught. And when it goes viral, it heals a whole lot of stuff. But it also makes us part of something bigger than ourselves, and that's just exhilarating. It's like body surfing on a wave. It just is fun. In this passage, Jesus says it's like food. It satisfies you. In the text we read today, a Samaritan woman is transformed by Jesus, and she rushes into her town to tell all the people about it, and they all come rushing out to meet Jesus. They don't sound bored. They sound excited, exhilarated, right? When we are part of a movement that's going viral, that's healing the culture, it is exhilarating. Now, if you've been around churches, you've heard sermons on the first part of this story, the woman at the well. If you've been around churches, you've heard a lot of sermons on that. Today, I want to look at the less well-known end of this story. And the first thing, first thing it shows us is you can't give what you don't have. So movements start when we ourselves have a genuine experience of Jesus. The text says just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. See, this was a misogynist culture where women were considered little better than, than dogs. So just that Jesus is talking to her at all is radically counterculture. It's also a racist culture, and she was a Samaritan, and they were considered half-breeds. It's also a moralistic culture of a whole lot of religiosity. And we know from the text that this woman has had five husbands, and she's now living with her current lover. Jewish law allowed for only a maximum of three husbands, so she's two over her limit, and she's fishing without a license. Nothing in Jesus' culture, nothing in his culture would have compelled him to talk to her. But part of the good news that Jesus brings is he comes to destroy every power and principality. And racism, misogyny, and religiosity are powers and principalities that Jesus came to defeat. And Jesus says to her, I can give you water and you'll never thirst again. And she says, well, give it to me. And then Jesus says this weird thing. He says, go call your husband. See, he points to her shame. He names her shame. Because see, the husbands, the well, they're really the same thing. She keeps going to that well again and again because she's always thirsty again and again. She, just like she keeps going from husband to husband to husband, looking for love in all the wrong places and never satisfied. Just like we go from one purchase to the next, one job to the next, one promotion to the next, one vacation to the next, one spouse to the next, never satisfied. And Jesus says, I can end your itinerary of desire. I can give you something that will satisfy you forever. But in order to do that, he has to name her shame. He has to point to that place of shame. But in doing so, somehow she feels loved. Somehow she feels his mercy triumphing over justice. Somehow fully known and fully loved. And, and that sets her free. And the next thing it says is, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town to tell everyone about it. Leaving her jar. Very specific detail, the kind that sort of smacks of an eyewitness account. But it's also a metaphor. The water is Jesus himself. See, her experience is he saw me down to the bottom of my soul and he loved me as high as the skies. And when we experience that, see, Jesus knows your shame. He knows that place of pain. He knows that place that you have screwed up. He knows that fear. He knows that insecurity you're trying so hard to hide from everyone. He knows it all. He sees you down to the bottom of your soul, but he loves you as high as the sky and his mercy triumphs over justice. And he says, you, you're my son. You're my, don't, I don't care about all that other stuff. I took care of it 2,000 years ago. You, I want to be with you. I want to do cool things in this world through you. And the more we experience that, the more we become contagious with the Jesus virus. It just kind of, we're infectious with this spirit of wonder, awe, and joy. A couple years ago, I met a man who used to be part of Hezbollah, but Jesus kept coming to him in his dreams. 
and it made him and made him feel loved and forgiven and finally he became a Christian and now he's working for peace in the Middle East. That's what Jesus can do. Turn a terrorist into a peace activist. And this guy, I got to talk with him, I got to have lunch with him. I mean, he just he just contagious with this spirit of wonder, awe and joy. And this woman is so excited about what she's experienced from Jesus. She just has to share it. So she runs off to, to her town to tell everyone about it. And this is basically the first Christian sermon ever preached. And notice, it's by a woman. Now, when I was in seminary in my preaching classes, my seminary professors would have given this, her sermon an absolute F. Right? There's no line-by-line exegesis of the text, no parsing of great Greek verbs, right? No dead white theologians are quoted any place in the sermon, right? It's too emotional. It's basically just a story. I mean, it did help launch a movement that continues to this day. Whatever, F. That would have been my seminary, right? I actually think it's got some, some virtue to it, right? It's contagious with joy. She's clearly been transformed by Jesus. But you know what the best thing about her sermon is? It's short, 14 words in the Greek, that's it. Somebody say amen. Right? You're like, oh, he's going to preach a short sermon today. We're going to beat the Baptist to brunch today. Awesome. No, I went to seminary, so you're here for the duration, right? They didn't teach me to preach like that. Her transformation is the sermon. Her experience of Jesus is the sermon. And then she says one of the most moving lines in the whole Bible. Astonishing line. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Wow. So here's a woman who comes to the well at noon when it's hot, when nobody would be there because of her shame over her past. But now her sin becomes the pulpit she stands in to point to Jesus. She is free from what anyone thinks of her. Wouldn't it be great to be free of worrying what anyone thinks about you? Infectious Jesus movements start when we have an experience of Jesus, and we can get that in a lot of ways. Prayer, worship. I love being here in worship. I experience Jesus here. Scripture, Christian community. If it's caught, not taught, we sort of need to be around people who have the Jesus virus to infect us, right? Experience of Jesus. Second, Jesus movements start when we point to him. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. She doesn't say, come to a seminar I went to. She doesn't say, read this book I read. She doesn't say, here are the rules, you better obey. She points to Jesus. Someone sent me a story about two Christians who were going door-to-door, handing out religious tracts, kind of the pushy evangelism kind, right? And, 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 and they got to one house, and it was cold outside, so the man invited them in, and they sat down in the living room, and then there was this silence. And the man said, well, what's next? And two Christians guys said, we don't know. We've never made it this far before. See, that's our image of how we do evangelism, right? We've got to be pushy, we've got to shove, we've got to be obnoxious, right? And that's why evangelism has gotten a, is a bad word these days because it's associated with that kind of pushy, obnoxious kind of thing. But the word in Greek simply means to bring good news. It just means to good news people. You think our world could use a little good news? You know someone who could use some good news? Evangelism is simply good newsing people. Evangelism is living in a way that makes Jesus look good and shows that he is for us, not against us, and that he makes all things new. Evangelism is just bringing good news into people's lives. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. A witness in a court simply says, here's what I saw, here's what I heard, and then the jury makes up their mind. Witnesses. But we try to be judge, jury, and prosecuting attorney all in one. Right? you got to believe this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our job is just to say, here's what Jesus has done for me, and let the Holy Spirit do 
the rest. A couple months ago, I got a letter from someone I went to third grade with. Third grade, found me on the internet. And I, I don't remember this at all, but he said, apparently one day in third grade, I said, what do you think it's going to be like when Jesus finally returns and sends the devil to hell and puts him in his place? Okay, here's the thing. I was not a Christian in third grade, so I don't know why I said that. And that's like the worst line in evangelism history. Right? But somehow it made him feel cared about, who knows how, and somehow it got him thinking, and, and it led him eventually to become a Christian, and in his letter he was talking about, and this has made my life better, third grade. Okay, if that, I wasn't even a Christian. If that doesn't show you it's not about us, it's what the Holy Spirit does, I mean, man, nothing well. Now, it took 40-some years before I found out I'd been helpful, right? 40 years. Jesus says in this passage, it's like harvest. One person plants, the other person harvests. We may just plant seeds that we don't see growing for 40, 45 years. That's all right. Just plant them anyway. And my experience is people almost never respond negatively when I just say, here's what Jesus has done for me. As long as I don't say it with some kind of an agenda, I'm just pointing to Jesus. Here's what he's done for me. I've not had anyone respond negatively. And by the way, remember my former career where I lived openly as a Christian on the very hostile Stanford campus. Can't be worse than your office. Trust me. <laughs> we launch Jesus movements when we have a contagious experience of Jesus, when we point to him and not try to argue about religion. And finally, and this is the most important, when we live counterculture. When we live counterculture, the very fact that Jesus is talking to this woman, the movement started because he lived so counterculture. And we are afraid to be counterculture, aren't we? People might think we're weird. Uh-huh, some will. Get over it. Here's why. We cannot change the culture unless we live counterculture. If we're just like the culture, we're not changing the culture. It's only when we're counterculture that we heal it. There's a letter from a 2nd century A.D. non-Christian Roman who wrote this letter trying to explain why Christianity was just grown like a weed in the Roman Empire. And this is what he said. He said, Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They share their table with everyone, but not their bed with everyone. Radically counterculture in a highly sexualized Roman world. He wrote, they, they are poor, but they make everyone else rich by how they serve them. They're short of everything, but they act as though they have plenty of everything. They are treated outrageously, but behave respectfully. Are Christians doing that these days in our culture? They're mocked and they bless in return. When they're attacked, they rejoice as if they've been given new life. Now, in a militaristic culture such as Rome was, what he describes in this letter was utterly despised as weakness in that culture, radically counterculture. But Christianity still went viral in that culture, not in spite of these things, but because they were so weird. See, men in that culture were getting a little tired of being told their only worth was to die in battle. In the same way, men in our culture are a little tired of being told they're only as worthy as the size of their wallet, the size of their job title, or their sexual exploits. So Roman men flocked to Jesus because he said, you're more than cannon fodder. In a highly racist culture, Christians put Africans, Jews, and Romans together and brought racial healing, radically counterculture. Back then, female infanticide was fairly common. We have a letter from a Roman businessman who wrote to his pregnant wife, if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, kill it. Fairly common in the Roman world. But Christians had such a high respect for life and such a high respect for women, they wouldn't do it. Now, this was abhorrent, to the, so abhorrent to the culture around them. To their way of thinking, too many women would weaken the empire. But women loved it, right? You mean you don't think we should be killed? Funny, they thought that was attractive. 
right? And so they flocked to the Jesus movement, but also, and that's part of why it grew, but also kind of just do the demographic math, right? What happens if Romans are killing their girl babies and Christians aren't, right? You get a surplus of Roman males. Where do they go to get wives? To the Christians. And then they have Christian kids. And now you got a movement going, right? Boom, mic drop. Take that, Caesar. (laughs) See, sometimes in our culture, it's the ways we're weird, it's the ways that we are counterculture that paradoxically actually attracts people to Jesus. As long, as long as we're counterculture in the right ways. Because sometimes in Christian subculture, we're different in all the ways that don't really matter. You know, Christian bumper stickers, Christian music, you know, smiley Jesus on our tooth- toothbrush, whatever, right? And nothing wrong with all that, but, but we're different in all those ways that don't matter. And then we end up being the same as the culture in all the ways that do. Just as angry, just as greedy, just as anxious. And one of the best ways to become counterculture is to let Scripture challenge our cultural assumptions about sex, money, the poor, relationships, everything. Because when we ignore the bits of the Bible that we don't like culturally, they don't fit us culturally, when we do that, what we do is we make culture our God. We follow culture more than what it says in Scripture. When one of the most valuable things about Scripture is it critiques our culture. That's why in totalitarian regimes, Christians are always the radicals. They refuse to admit the dictator is the highest authority. When was the last time something in Scripture made you go, hmm, I may need to rethink my politics on this issue? If it's been a while, that's a good sign you're following the culture, not Jesus. Whatever side you're on, it goes both ways. Hospitals started when Christians did the counterculture thing and decided to take care of the sick. In that culture, you don't, let the, you don't take care of the sick, you let them die. Otherwise, they weaken you. Orphanages started when Christians cared for cast-off kids the culture said should be cast off. Christians helped the poor. Back then, the poor weren't meant to be helped. They were meant to be slaves. And do you know why those things don't seem counterculture to us today? Because the Jesus movement made them a normal part of Western culture. Don't tell me that people living the genuine Jesus way of life can't change a culture. They can. And yes, some folks may think we're weird when we're counterculture, but you know what? Also, deep down inside, they might start thinking things, maybe even saying things like, you're kind of weird, but wow, you guys prioritize faith, family, and friendships over getting ahead, over getting your kid into Harvard, getting your kid on the select tiddlywinks team, or whatever it is, (laughs) right? I bet there is one. (laughs) It's the east side. I bet there is one, right? And, and, And because of that, you've got these great friendships. Your marriages seem good. Your kids, they talk to you. Weird. Or, wow, you guys give time and money to help people break out of poverty. That seems hard, but you always have these stories of lives transformed, and you never seem bored. Like, you don't even watch TV. Your real life is better. You're weird. Weird. And then it just kind of catches on one by one by one, and the Jesus movement goes viral. Grassroots, not top down. So the question is, are we contagious? The question is, are we contagious Christians? Because, see, sometimes what churches do is we inoculate you, right? We give you some weakened Christian virus that makes you immune to the real thing for the rest of your life. You know, I, I wasn't much of a germaphobe before I got this job, but preaching with a cold, sore throat, just miserable, so made me kind of germaphobic. And a couple years, in this, years ago, in this service, I was baptizing a baby who had just this really runny nose, like just leaking is everywhere, fluid, right? And he, right before I baptized him, he grabbed the microphone off my face, put it in his mouth, and slobbered all over it. And when I put the microphone back on, I could feel the drool running down my cheek. Okay, that's a metaphor. Are you a contagious Christian? 
who just leaks Jesus everywhere. Right? You, just, you just leak the, the, the radically different, fanatically joyful, amazingly adventurous, sacrificially loving life that shows the real, risen, making new of all things Jesus. Are you that person? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> At least not always, but sometimes, sometimes. And we can be more contagious with a, through a couple things. Real quick, prayer. Keep asking for a deeper experience of Jesus. Scripture. Community. We can't be counterculture unless there are others around us to say, way to go, you downsized your life so that you could give more away. Way to go. Ignore that person in your office who says you're weird for not driving the Lexus. Well done. And then fourth, and this is your homework, who do you know that's far from God? Who do you know that's far from God? This week, live in a way, maybe even counterculture, live in a way that makes Jesus look good and helps that person know that Jesus is for them, not against them. My wife and I used to have these neighbors across the street. They were atheists. One was addicted to drugs. There was prostitution kind of happening out of their house. Uh, but we, we got along. They knew I was a pastor, but we got along. We liked them. You know, we'd help each other out. One day when our youngest was about three, she got out of the house, and we didn't notice. So the neighbor called and said, one got out. <laughs> Super helpful, right? So one night I, I drove home, and he was standing in his yard in the dark. And I just got one of those nudges, knew it was God, go talk to him. So I, I went across the street and I said, are you okay? And he said, no. And turns out a close relative was in the hospital with a drug overdose. And he was having problems at work and a couple other issues. And we talked for a while. And then he finally said, man, Scott, how do you get through stuff like this? And I said, oh, Neil, I'm a pastor. You really want to tee it up that easy for me? <laughs> I mean, seriously, that is right across the center of the plate, right? And mixing my sports metaphors. And he goes, yeah, I, I guess I walked into that one. I said, oh, you so walked into that one. It's Jesus. And there are times when I'm going through a hard time, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes, his presence seems so real, the problems get a little bit smaller. And he said, hmm. And then we talked some more, and then I said, can I pray for you? And he's an atheist, and he goes, what do I have to lose? <laughs> right? So I put my arm around him, and I prayed for him, and when I was done, he said, thanks, that was different. Now, you know, he didn't pick up the garden hose and say, baptize me, you know, I mean, and then later on, they moved away, so, I mean, I don't know what happened, I don't, you know, I, they moved away shortly after that, but maybe I planted a seed, but even if I didn't plant a seed, at least in that moment, he knew that if Jesus was real, that Jesus was for him. And as we do that, one person at a time, some will catch the Christian virus, and we could start a movement that begins to heal the east side and beyond. And you might go, oh, Dudley, that's nice pastor talk. Can't happen. Not possible. Not possible? Read your history. Read your history. It's happened before in cultures far worse than ours. A while back, there was a news report that confirms what missionaries in the Middle East have been saying for 10 years. Muslims finding Christians and saying, your Jesus is coming to me in my dreams. According to this news report, 16,000 a day, as high as 16,000 a day. And guess what news agency broke that story? Some Christian website? Mm -mm. Al Jazeera, the Arab News Network. Now, the tone was sort of horrified. How do we stop this? And they, they eventually took the story down after they posted it because Christians started talking about it. But, but there it was. A multi-year study done by Fuller Seminary asked Muslim converts why they became Christians. Here are some of their most common answers. Christians cared for the poor. Christians had loving marriages where women were treated as equals. Christian prayers had healed the disabled. 
The Bible emphasizes God's unconditional love. Christians can be certain of their forgiveness because a price has been paid. And as they read the Bible, they were convinced of its truth. It can happen. And when it does, it can heal a person, a culture, a world. Or take Jubilee Reach, which we started. And their after-school sports, music, robotics clubs that are transforming whole schools. One school is about to be taken over by the federal government for poor performance. But once Jubilee Reach entered with their site coaches who care about these students, teach them about integrity and teamwork and perseverance and just basically love on these students, gang activity disappeared, test scores skyrocketed, and bullying decreased. And now it is ranked as one of the best schools in the state. And where there was gang graffiti before, now there are hand-painted banners that the students have done. One kid who was a gang leader ended up tearfully confessing his wrongs to a, to a room full of his fellow students. And now the school district wants us in the elementary and high schools because the transformation is documented and dramatic. Now, we don't proselytize. We honor the schools that way. They've asked us not to do that. We won't. We just live in a way that makes Jesus look good. And guess what? Some of these folks are finding their way to Jesus anyway. Newsflash, Holy Spirit doesn't always need our sermonizing. It's caught, not taught. One woman who works with schools all over the country says, I've never seen anything like it. And then with tears in her eyes, she said, I've been an atheist my whole life, but I'm beginning to believe in God because of what I'm seeing at Jubilee Reach. And by the way, their auction is on November 13th. I'd encourage you to sign up and go. It's inspiring. Here's the deal. Do you think our world could use some good news? In this text, Jesus says, look around. The fields are ripe unto harvest. And what he means is, in a culture that is increasingly negative, there are so many people desperate for a word of hope. And now is not the time for God's people to be a bunch of nervous Nellies as negative as the culture around us, but instead sons and daughters of the risen king who bring good news wherever we go. And the good news of Jesus rightly lived is the most compelling thing there is. Wrongly lived, it's terrible. But rightly lived, it can change a whole lot of things. What if rumors started to spread around the east side of different races coming together, not just going to church together, but actually really having community together? What if rumors went viral of healed marriages? What if there were rumors all over the place that people were getting the tools they need to get out of poverty? Actually, that rumor's already here. And what if what all these rumors had in common were Christians living the genuine Jesus way of life? What if we lived in a way that forced people to say their God is good? Force city councils to say, we disagree with them on stuff, but man, these, this city could not survive without these Christians. Force the national media to say, I think they're kind of weird, but you got to hand it to those Christians. Their lives are harder, but richer, deeper, bigger. Church, the devil is doing damage all around us. Marriage is falling apart. Folks are lonely. People are trapped in poverty. But Jesus, Jesus, Jesus can heal all of that. Jesus makes all things new. I've seen it in Rwanda. I've seen him make things new in Cambodia. I've seen it in Kirkland, Issaquah. I've even seen it in Bellevue. Jesus proclaims good news to the poor. He sets at liberty those who are oppressed. He turns darkness into light, mourning into dancing, sorrow into joy. But all of that is caught, not taught. So I ask Jesus to so fill you up with his love and his power that you live in a way that causes people to ask the question, what on earth has gotten into you? And you will say his name is? Jesus. Amen. Jesus, we can't change the world. We can't even change ourselves. But you can. So Lord, heal us and then use us as agents of your healing all around this culture, all around this world. And Lord, we ask that we would help make your way of life go viral. 
Lord, your mercy triumphs over judgment. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your power as we go forward from here. In your name, amen.